Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here in good health by your provision, by your grace. On this day to celebrate death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And thank you that you have rescued us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we might declare the wonders of your son. I pray that we would walk in light of that and that today uh, in Sunday school that you would bless my words, the ears of the people here, it would be fruitful and that we would just wrap up well, Father, and see how Jesus Christ is the whole story of the scripture. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, last class. I feel like we've all been through so much together. My wife is getting you guys notes right now, just like the last couple times. So, last time we covered the Gospels, and today we are covering Acts and Epistles. So, as a recap, last time in the Gospels we saw Jesus Christ bringing in the new covenant that the prophets talked about. We looked a bit in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, showing how His death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he promised to give was the fulfillment of that new covenant, uh, that Christ was the better King David, he was the better Adam, uh, that he came into history as the Messiah, not in exactly the way that the people expected. And now we're going to talk about the epistles. So if the Gospels are what Jesus did, the history of that, the epistles are exegeting that or expounding on that or unpacking that, showing us the theology of what happened on the cross, what happened in the resurrection, in the life of Christ. What's that mean for us now? And how do we live accordingly? So, starting in the book of Acts. So it follows the apostles, especially Paul. Most of it's the apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And what? It's the mission of Peter throughout Jerusalem and Samaria for about Acts 1 to 12. And then from 13 to 28, it kind of transitions, and the rest of the book mostly follows Paul uh, going throughout the whole Roman Empire, preaching the gospel to all nations. This is in the Roman Empire, uh, and this takes place over about 30 years, actually, is what the book of Acts covers. So it's one of those things that's deceiving. Again, if you kind of just sat down and read it in a sitting, you could probably be convinced that it happened in um, in about a week. But it happened from right after the ascension of Christ. That's how the book picks up with the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it goes to the end of Paul's ministry uh, in about 62 AD. And why the book of Acts? This shows that the gospel is going to all nations. This is fulfilling God's promise to bless all people through Abraham's family. uh, And Jesus now is the king. And that's what these people are going out and telling everybody. Christ is the Lord now. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. The new covenant is here. He is the better David. And now this better king is going to rule over all nations through the spread of the gospel. Then Acts 2.18 and verse 21 says, In the last days it shall be, and this is them talking to all of the people. Uh, He's kind of preaching to them and he's reciting a sermon that they would have known. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So like I said, huge, huge fulfillment of New Covenant stuff here. The Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. That doesn't mean every individual person. That's all kinds of people. It's not just short 
brief experiences of the Holy Spirit for Jewish people now. It's being poured out on all of the nations so they can all come and worship the King Jesus and anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just Jewish people anymore, which was never the intention. What's that? Oh, they're going to be a man. Okay, thanks. Romans. We're going to swing through these pretty quick, guys, except a few places I want to stop along the way. And my goal is to leave a little more time for discussion at the end here, but we'll see what happens. So, Romans is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. You're going to hear me say the Apostle Paul writing to whatever the title sounds like a lot here. Uh, And it's the gospel in a letter is one way to consider it. So, it covers man's wickedness in 1 to 3, how we're saved by faith through the cross in 4 to 5, and how God's salvation transforms, how it makes us different than we were in 6 to 8. And then God's sovereignty over salvation, him having the right to work out his plans with Israel and the nations the way he desires. And then from 12 to 16, it's practical application of that. That's a very common theme in Paul's letters. The first front is usually just front-loaded with theology, and then usually the tail end is unpacking, now, now how then shall we live? How do you live in light of that? 1 Corinthians, written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's a rebuke to the Christians in Corinth because there's divisions in sexual immorality. Uh, they're abusing the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, he doesn't say they don't have the gifts of the Spirit. He actually says you are lacking in no spiritual gift. Um, but he says that you're, you're not using the gifts correctly. You're not managing uh, what God has given you correctly. Uh, so there's a lot of, here is where you guys are sinning. Here's what you need to do about it. Here's how you operate church discipline. Uh, and here's how you're misoperating the gifts that you do have. And here's how to operate them correctly. And there's this amazing passage about the resurrection in there too in chapter 15. Uh, so it's a very, it's a rebuke letter, but also mixed in with some grace and doesn't leave them looking to themselves but to the resurrection of all of us following the resurrection of Christ. And he wrote this to the Corinthians from Ephesus, probably in about 55 AD. And yeah, a big theme in this letter is that self-examination is pretty vital. But like I said, he doesn't leave them looking to themselves, but at the resurrection. That gives us the hope to continue in good doing and not sinning. So, 2 Corinthians... Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to the Christians in Corinth again. So now he's writing this letter. This purpose of this letter is most of the Corinthians have actually repented at this time. There's a small minority that is rebellious, uh, but most of them have repented at this time. And he's encouraged by that, and he's encouraging them in that. So it also covers Christian giving. Uh, Paul defends his apostleship because people are starting to think that the apostle Paul is weak and therefore maybe not an apostle. Uh, So he's actually defending himself. This is why I was weak in your presence. This is why I was really lowly and kind. Uh, But if I have to show up not that way, he says he will. Uh, It covers new new covenant realities. And he defends himself to the unrepentant minority and addresses them at the end too that's still left in Corinth. He probably wrote this from Philippi in 56 AD. And yeah, why? It shows us to rebuke. That rebuke leads to repentance. And repentance leads to a 180 turnaround. And it also affirms Paul's apostleship. So there's a passage in there that says, you know, the repentance that you brought, the repentance that you guys had, look at what zeal it turned to, and even anger, and it turned into the changing of your lives. So they had repented from 1 Corinthians. Somebody want to read for me 2 Corinthians 1.20? This is an important verse I want to touch on for a bit. 2 Corinthians 1.20. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Right. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And being that, when Paul was writing the New Testament, they had the Old Testament scriptures. The promises of God, Paul could only have been talking about, are Old Testament promises. So, are we going to get land? Are we going to have prosperity in the land? No, but what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the true Jew. Jesus Christ kept the whole law perfectly. He, he is true Israel. And actually, if you read your New Testament, there's a lot of allusions and applications of verses to Jesus that show us that Christ is Israel. Uh, the servant songs in Isaiah, for example, just call him Israel. Uh, at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus Christ is the new Israel, and we are put into him. So Jesus Christ receives all of the blessings because he was the faithful Jew. If you remember in Deuteronomy when we talked about blessing and curse, in Deuteronomy 28, 27 and 28, the Lord says to Israel, if you keep all of these laws, here's all the blessings that you'll get. And if you fail to keep all of these laws, meaning if you struggle at one point, here's all the curses that you'll get. And the curses is a lot longer than the blessings. But Jesus Christ being the true Jew, true Israel, he kept all the law. He didn't stumble at one point. And now, all of the blessings come to Christ, and we're in Christ. Through faith, we're in Christ. So now we receive all of the promises, and this is how we become Abraham's children. This is how we become heirs of the promise of Abraham. This is how all of the nations are blessed through Christ. So it's in Christ that we do receive all of the promises of the Old Covenant. Now, there is work to be done to apply that to us contextually, because we don't live in Israel. We're not going to get the physical land of Israel and rule and prosper there. Uh, but the whole New, New Testament unpacks how these promises are, are meant for us and how they apply to us. Galatians is next. Paul writing to the church of Galatia. Uh, he rebukes their heresy. Uh, people are teaching that Christians must teach the law, uh, be circumcised first to become a Christian and brought into the new covenant and saved. And he rebukes also the separation of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, and he says that there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. There's no male nor female, slave nor free. We're one in Christ. Stop dividing. Written in Asia Minor, probably anywhere between 50 and 60 AD. And in Galatians, Paul shows us that we are children of Abraham, as long as we have faith, not on the basis of law-keeping, because we're in Christ, and we're all one family in Christ by faith. Does somebody want to read Galatians 3, 7 to 9? Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Through Abraham. 
And this is fulfilling the promise. And it even says there, she read, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. God had this in mind the whole time. This was the plan all along. This was the gospel preached to Abraham for seeing what God would do in Christ. Ephesians, written to Ephesus by Paul. Ephesians is just an amazing letter basically covering what it means to be a Christian at the root. It's who we are in Christ and all of the blessings we receive in Christ, realities about ourselves. Uh, Paul wrote it from prison in about 60 to 61 AD, Roman prison. And why? Uh, yeah, it gets to the core of what it means to be a Christian regardless of church or individual circumstance. This is Paul's most formal letter. It doesn't actually have a church that it's exactly addressed to. Most people think it was actually meant to circulate around different churches, and it's just a very, not ambiguous, but it's a very broad letter that all of the churches of the time are supposed to read and apply to themselves. It wasn't addressing any particular situation. It was just addressing all of the benefits we experience when we're saved. Philippians. Paul writing to the church in Philippi. This is called the letter of joy by a lot of people, and it points recipients of Christ and His presence as the source of joy. Christ and His presence is the source of joy. Paul wrote this from prison, um, but he learned how to abound. Remember, all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because it doesn't matter my exterior situation, I have Christ with me. And that's what the point of Philippians is. Jesus Christ gives us joy through any situation, so therefore have joy in him. He also writes it to express his appreciation for the Philippian believers. He had good reports coming from them, and uh, his appreciation for their strength, and their support of his ministry, financially and prayerfully. Colossians, from Paul to the church in Colossae, and it's, this is an epistle with a very high view of Christ, so this is actually addressing Christological heresy at the time, meaning people were just teaching false things about Jesus Christ, saying that probably he wasn't truly God in the flesh, he wasn't truly God, things like that. People were having too low a view of Jesus, so Paul wrote this to show them that the whole universe was created by Jesus Christ before he was incarnate, and it's sustained by him and his power. He wrote this one from prison too, in about 60 AD. Um, yeah, and like I said, written to address false teachings about Jesus Christ going around Colossae. First Thessalonians. Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica, and this contains a proper doctrine of the second coming of Christ, and it encourages how to live in light of it. Uh, written from Corinth in about 51, and why this was written was to encourage church members mourning over dead ones in Thessalonica. Uh, and he's teaching them about the resurrection and the second coming, which is to encourage and instruct new believers as well. So there's people in the Thessalonica church, and their family died, and these people are convinced because they don't have a good doctrine of the resurrection yet. The people in Thessalonica are thinking, well, anybody who dies before the resurrection is just going to miss it. You have to be alive during the resurrection too, which is kind of funny, right? I mean, it's a resurrection. Why would you have to be alive? You think you should be dead at the best experience resurrection. But anyway... The transformation of our bodies at the second coming of Christ and being gathered to Him. They think that people who die before that miss it and they're getting really discouraged and really depressed. But Paul writes them to correct that and give them hope. Second Thessalonians, written by Paul again to this church, and it's a further description uh, and teaching about the second coming and the day of the Lord. We've seen that theme a lot through the minor prophets. Uh, and Paul's giving them insight about what this means, this day of the Lord, and further encouragement and instruction on how to live. Written from Corinth in about 51 AD, probably pretty close after the first one was written. 
uh, and it's written to refute false teachings on the day of the Lord, people were saying that it had already come. We missed it. Jesus already came back. We just didn't realize it. But this assures the Thessalonians. There's a section here. That day shall not come until first. And he explains all of these obvious things are going to happen first. You will not miss it. Then the Lord will descend with every idol seeing. He'll have a loud trumpet call. You're not going to miss the second coming. So again, his, both his letters to Thessalonians, Thessalonica are just correcting misguided views of the resurrection and second coming. Now we're getting into what's called the pastoral epistles. So it's just a chunk of letters that are written to young developing leaders. And Paul is just teaching them. Here's how you ought to be a correct leader. Here's how you ought to be a good leader. Here's how church offices should look. Here's how you qualify to be a leader. So 1 Timothy was written to Timothy. Paul was mentoring him. Um, and it's the most complete instruction for church leadership and the qualities and expectations of leaders and church discipline instruction. So this letter is saying, Timothy, you're going to be a leader. You're already a leader in Ephesus. If you want to establish more leaders than you should, here's what they need to look like. Here's unnegotiable qualifications they have to have. Here's how they should operate as leaders. And here's how you should deal with rebellious people in the church or false teachers in the church. So it's very practical. Uh, and it's to encourage Timothy to fight the good fight as a young leader and to ensure he sets a good example of his faith and to affirm Timothy's call despite his youth. A lot of people were tempted to say, well, Timothy's so young, we can never follow a guy that young. But Paul is affirming Timothy here and saying, that doesn't matter, let nobody despise you because of your youth is one verse in here. Second Timothy. Paul's writing about, probably about four years later, later to a more experienced Timothy. And this is a call to Timothy to mirror Paul, who fought the good fight. So in the first letter, uh, we see Paul saying, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. And now in this letter, Paul's saying, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. Uh, I ran, I endured. So a lot of people think Paul's probably pretty close to being martyred when he writes this letter. And he's starting to realize that. So he's writing this last letter to Timothy. This is the last things I want to say to you, Timothy. This is, this is why you need to fight the good fight of faith like I did. Use me as an example. Uh, and here's why you should do it. And he wrote this from Roman prison just before his death. His death isn't recorded in scripture, but most scholars think that he was, he was killed um, under Roman rule when Nero was in power. And why? Uh, Paul knew that his time was soon over, like I said. So he wrote this to encourage Timothy one last time, using himself as an example to follow Christ even unto death. Titus, the last pastoral epistle. Uh, Paul writing to Titus, another person that he mentored. And Paul's directing Titus to establish a church government of faithful overseers where he's ministering, uh, called elders. And this connects right truth of right doctrine with pure living. So there's a connection in this letter that if you have a right understanding of Christ and a right understanding of the gospel and faith, usually good living naturally follows if that's genuinely where you've placed your heart. And it's also, like I said, to establish elders and a guide into church purity and truth, and it instructs different types of people in the church. So here's how young women ought to act in the church, here's how young men ought to act in the church, and how to be productive members. And this shows that the gospel's truth produces godliness, and shows that the importance of biblical leadership is really at the forefront, and the importance of right talking. Philemon. Paul is writing to a slave owner in this letter. So Onesimus, 
which was a slave to Philemon, he escaped and he came to Paul. And he didn't want to be a slave anymore. So what is this letter about? So a letter Paul sends to a slave owner with his runaway slave. He actually sends the guy's slave back to him with this letter. And based on the gospel, Paul saying to this slave owner Philemon, you need to accept your slave Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Because of Christ, I heard Philemon that you put your faith in Christ, so if you want to walk that out, because of Christ, your guys' relationship is whole changed. You and Onesimus uh, is wholly changed. You and Onesimus aren't slave master anymore. You two are brothers in Christ, so receive Onesimus back as a brother, not as a slave. And if you would, Paul actually requests, could you even send Onesimus back to me so I can use him for ministry? This one is another epistle written from prison. I think I have a typo there. Written in 10 or 60 AD. I don't think this was written before Jesus started his ministry. <laughs> and why? To show that brotherhood in Christ outweighs worldly power structures, and that Christ is the ultimate master, and we are brothers in him. Hebrews. Hebrews is a really interesting letter. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews. I can tell you theories, but I don't know who wrote Hebrews, and neither do you. And it is a letter of encouragement. Did he? No. I think it was a sermon by Paul recorded by Luke, but but neither of us know. My theory is Paul. Okay. You're right. We don't know. It's a letter of encouragement to Jewish Christians. So the situation here was this was right as uh, persecution was starting to ramp up for Christians, and it was a lot easier to be a Jew in the first century than a Christian. It wasn't altogether easier, but it was altogether easy, but it was a lot easier. So, Jewish people were more left alone by the Romans than Christian people were. Christian people were wanted, killed, all sorts of horrible things. And so these Jewish people are getting really tempted. You know, it's a lot easier to be a Jew. We should, we should leave Christianity and be Jewish instead. And, you know, maybe Christ wasn't the perfect sacrifice anyway. It kind of feels weird to not go into the temple every week. I don't feel like my sins are really being forgiven because I'm not doing all the stuff I used to do. Like, can it really be true that Christ was the final sacrifice? I don't think so. I want to go back to Judaism. I want to be a practicing Jew again and not be a Christian. This letter is a warning letter and an encouragement letter. So there's a lot of really strong warnings in this letter saying, if you go back to the Jewish faith and you reject Christ now, there's no sacrifice left for you. The Jewish faith has nothing to offer anymore because the fulfillment of it is coming Christ. This is what God was doing. And you're going to reject the true Jewish faith, which is found in Jesus. And it displays Christ as God incarnate. Uh, there's even a passage in um, chapter 1 where the Father's calling Jesus one. So this, uh, this book has a really high Christology. It wants to show Christ is God. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. Um, and you need, to, you need to endure and run the race just as Jesus did for the joy set before him. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, when? We don't know when it was written. It was probably written before 70 AD, because in 70 AD, the Jewish temple was destroyed, and it's pretty certain that the author of this letter would have mentioned the temple being destroyed as an argument. <laughs> so this kind of assumes the temple's still in function, so it was for sure written before then. And we know that it was written by a Jew to Jews, for sure. Just because the author had so much knowledge of the Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions, and he's writing to Jews pretty obviously because he's appealing to that, and that probably wouldn't mean as much to a Gentile. Gentiles aren't going back to Judaism because they weren't Jews. The Epistle of James. James is writing to Jewish Christians here, and this is the Faith Without Works is Dead letter. 
If you hear that a lot, this is where it comes from. So this is how you live out your faith. Uh, you need to seek wisdom and treat your less fortunate brothers as equal in Christ. So there was a lot of social division in the church that James was writing to, um, or to the people James was writing to. And yes, the, the biggest stress of this letter is faith without works is dead. You need to live out your faith. That's what it means to have true faith. Uh, this was likely written before the Jerusalem Council, most scholars think. Actually, a lot of people think James could have been the first thing written chronologically that's in our New Testament. And the reason we think it was written before the Jerusalem Council is because that's a council in the book of Acts um, where they at least make a huge attempt to end all of the separation of Jew and Gentile churches things. But that's still kind of going on when he writes this letter. So it was probably written before that was that happened. And why? Uh, Christians James is writing to are not applying their faith. There's factions and social discrimination in the church. And the recipients have become double-minded. So he wants to correct them. First Peter. Written by Peter to circulate in the province of Asia Minor. And encourages Christians who are suffering uh, and persecuted to imitate Christ in their suffering. Reminding them that just after Jesus' death, he was risen to glory. And he reminds them, look guys, we are aliens on this world. We will never belong here. Um, you need to look to the resurrection. You need to look to the new heavens and new earth. But here, we're already foreigners. We're never going to fit in here. We need to accept that reality and endure. And why, like I said, to encourage Christians to endure in their faith in times of persecution. Second Peter. Again, he's writing this letter to circulate in the province of Asia Minor. It would just go around the churches, probably be written down again and duplicated before it moved on. This is Peter's farewell letter, uh, beckoning Christians to keep their faith in the returning until the returning of Christ. Christ will return and meet unrighteousness with judgment. He uses a lot of examples there, and uh, he also addresses the abuse of Paul's letters in here uh, and points to the day of the Lord where the universe will be made new and the unrighteous will be just. So a lot of people were saying, "Well, Paul preaches grace, so Paul's preaching something different than Peter." So, we can just live however we want because of grace. That was a common misuse of Paul's letters in the first century. And Peter's also addresses in this letter that that's an abuse of his letters. And people who are messed up in their minds are twisting his letters. And why was this written? Scoffers, like in Noah's days, were mocking God and his people, claiming that the day of the Lord will never come. So he addresses people saying, well, everything's going pretty normal. Everything's continuing just as it always has. I don't think Jesus is coming back. I feel like he would have by now. And Peter's saying, no, he definitely is. <laughs> First, second, and third John will run through here quick as a unit. So the purpose of these letters, they call us to obedience and devotion. So there's a lot of if we say in here. So if we say we walk with God and we're not acting like it, we're actually lying. Um, and this is also... These letters are to prove that Jesus came in the flesh. It, John begins it by that which we have seen and beheld and touched and seen with our eyes. He's making it very physical because there's people called Gnostics in the first century saying that Jesus was spiritual. Uh, they kind of taught that fleshly things, physical things were bad, but spiritual is good. And that's a heresy, right? God created all things and he created all things good. Uh, corrupted by sin, to be sure, but good. His creation is good. And Christ came into that creation, and Paul, or John, sorry, wants to really prove that and encourage us to walk in lockstep with that so we're not liars, you know, saying one thing and acting another way, believing one way and acting another way. Second John, 
pretty similar themes, says, written to the elect lady and her children. This is one that has a direct audience it's referred to. Some people actually think, pretty interestingly, that that's just a metaphor to the church, the elect lady and her children. It may also be an actual woman. We're not certain. But where 1 John focuses on fellowship with God, 2 John focuses on how to treat false teachers, uh, how to have, uh, well, not how to have a good relationship with false teachers, how to not have any relationships with false teachers. Um, Keep your fellowship with each other pure is the purpose of 2 John. Third John, again, no particular recipients, likely meant to circulate around. Um, First John calls us to, oh, I'm on my, there we go. Third John's an encouragement to Gaius and a rebuke to a man named uh, Diotrephus, uh, who is slandering the apostles. And it's just really short, and it repeats themes from First John. If we say this and act like this, we're liars. Jude, from Jude, the brother of James and Jesus. What is Jude? It's a plea to contend for the faith, to know the faith well and make arguments for it, be able to defend your faith against false teachings, um, corrects false views of grace as well that were still going around in that first century, and warnings that God will judge the unrighteous. He uses a lot of examples. If God didn't spare these people that you read about in the Old Testament... What makes you think we're so special? It's not that we have more right to sin now that Christ has come. Actually, we're more accountable. We've received a better covenant, so now we need to act as if we've received something better with more thankfulness and more living for God. And this is to expose false teachers and resist them by defending the living faith. Revelation. Who is Revelation written by? By the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia. He specifically addresses Um, And he gives them admonitions and warnings and encouragements. And it is a prophetic vision describing Jesus' victory in history as the conquering king. And it looks forward to his second coming and restoration of the universe. Uh, Likely written from the slave island of Patmos in 90 AD. And why was Revelation written? The main purpose Revelation was written is to give Christians awe-inspiring hope and amazement in the person of Christ until his return. So we should read Revelation and become very familiar with it and make as much sense of it as we can and, and, and know the Bible up until Revelation uh, because you can't really understand Revelation unless you've read quite a bit of the Old Testament and even a lot of the New Testament. But the main goal of Revelation isn't for us to figure out tons and tons of specifics. We should develop a view on things in there. But you can read Revelation and just be encouraged. Uh, sometimes... You know, if I'm very discouraged, I will go to passages in Revelation. It's the primary purpose of the book is not to make a roadmap of history, even though that could be a byproduct that God wants us to try for. The main purpose of the book is to just elevate Christ really high and make him beautiful in our eyes and make us go, there's a lot of weird things in here, a lot of beasts with horns and weird people riding the beast and stuff. And it sounds like history is going to be pretty scary until Christ comes back. But in the midst of it, Christ is the Alpha and Omega. He is overcome. He is the first and the last. The firstborn from the dead. Right? So, we're going to break into groups one last time. And each group is going to read both of these passages and kind of compare them. So we'll go like this. We'll go group one. Group two will be until Myra's row. And then group three, just to even out the numbers, will be Brad and Christina and... And you guys. So group one, group two, and then group three is you guys in that row.
And uh, I want you to read those passages, just the specific verses there, not the whole passage. Uh, and if something seems obvious, it's purposely obvious. It, it's, uh, you're meant to see the connection. And then, and then read that second set of verses from Genesis and then those verses from uh, Revelation 22 and just come up with any similarities or differences you see is the big thing. Similarities or differences. What looks the same here? Any, anything. It's, not, it's never too obvious. So let's do that now. Okay. I'm hearing some good stuff. So I think with that we can get going. I'm hearing pretty much most of what I want to hear anyway. Okay, let's start with this group. What did you guys find or notice similarities or... What, did, what any similarities you guys found? Any connections? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely connections. Nice. That's good, okay. Yeah, we were reading the same passages, so we did, we really recognize the connection of the rivers, and then also the connection of the trees. Nice. Nice. That's great. Did you guys recognize any connections or anything similar or anything like that? Yes, yes. Were you there for Dr. Paul's last Revelation class? No, you weren't. You should have been. I'm actually stealing some things from him. Anyway. Um, that is very important, guys, yes. Anything this group came up with, saw connections with, thought of? Same, same connections. Yep. We're just, uh, we're talking about the significance of healing, healing of the nation. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in Ezekiel, there's a tree meant for, it says it has medicine on it, so it is for healing, right? Like a foreshadow. Good, that's great, guys. So, yeah, here's all, all of the connections I notice is what you guys were saying, and then some. I'll just read one to five here and go through that really quick. Um, and he showed me pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So in Genesis, you have the Garden of Eden where God was present with his people. No curse there. And there's rivers proceeding from it. In Ezekiel, you have this vision looking forward to one day where there would be this temple. That's God's presence. The, the temple represents God's presence. And there's rivers proceeding from it of living water. Ezekiel says everything the water touches is alive again. It lives again. And in Revelation... This is what this was all pointing to. God's presence back in the center of the new Jerusalem with his people and rivers of living, of living water coming from God's throne, coming from God's presence with his people. And it's even better than that because keep reading. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. So there's at least two trees of life because on either side of the river was, was the tree of life, right? So there's many trees of life here, not just one like in Eden. Um, each tree was yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. So Ezekiel pointed to that with a tree with medicine. And they shall see his face. Uh, or sorry, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. So that's a connection from Genesis. Genesis 2, there was no curse. And now the, there's no more curse again. It's gone now because of what Christ has did. There will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. 
they shall see his face, and their, his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no light there, nor lamp, nor sun, for the Lord their God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So he will be their God, and they will be his people right in the midst of them. In Genesis, it just says God came down and visited them. He didn't live right there with them all the time. But in Revelation, we're in his presence forever. He lives with us continually. We experience the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and we're just dwelling in unity with God. And it says, and they shall reign forever and ever. So in Genesis 1, God creates man upright. And he says, rule the earth. Take dominion, right? Uh, see, I have given you all living plants for food. I have given you all of the creatures. They're subject to you. Rule and have dominion over the earth. And we botched that, and we've been botching that for thousands of years. But now in Gen uh, uh, Revelation 22, verse 5, they shall reign forever and ever. We will reign the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. We will rule on them. And this is our purpose. This isn't taking glory from Jesus. This is, this is what God meant to do the whole time. This is us taking back our purpose as humans to rule perfectly in perfect unity. And this is what it was pointing to the whole time. Genesis restored, but even better, even closer to God. And that's what the Ezekiel temple vision was pointing to. God's presence in the midst of his people, rivers of living water, blessing the whole earth, restoring the whole earth from there. And that's the whole story of scripture is pointing all to that scene in Revelation 22. Everything's adding up to that. So that's everything. That's the whole class. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a great day. We should pray, actually, before we go, just in light of that. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the unity of your word. And thank you that it's so obvious that nobody but God could have inspired your word. It's so obviously connected. It so obviously tells the one story of Christ restoring us to rule and reign with him properly again. To be God's people in his presence. Thank you that you did that for us, Father. Thank you that you did not leave us as orphans. Thank you that you didn't just destroy us when we sinned. And thank you that you were so resolved to glorify yourself and restore us to our intended purpose that you sent Christ. I pray we would live in light of this teaching and just remember it all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.